Thank you for joining us on Longest War. I know there's many truths about war. So if you could just tell me a truth about war is from your perspective. Yeah, how do I put this into words without... Uh, <laughs> um, the, the lack of thinking outside the box with having a lot of college students in our reserve unit, we could give them a task. And, you know, here's my active duty mentality was, all right, I tell PFC Schmuckatelli to do this. They do it exactly as I say. Well, they were like, well, I'm going to do it this way because I'm smart and I have a brain and <laughs> this is, well, I'm a human being. And Yeah, this is easier to do, yeah, boss. Like, Trust me. <laughs> I don't I don't care if it's easier. Do it the hard way. Because I, I did it the goddamn hard yeah, way yeah. and it sucks. So yeah. it's going to suck for you too. Yeah, I was always a part of really just like really rack my brain like why are we doing it this way i totally agree all right okay we're good to go all right today we are joined by lee wagner lee thanks for joining us thank you um where do you want to start i guess from the beginning mm-hmm. where are you from freeport pennsylvania where's that armstrong county half hour north of pittsburgh so You've always been kind of Pittsburgh-ish area. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So. so you grew up like a Steelers, Pirates, Penguins fan, all that kind of good stuff. All that, yeah. And you are you were in the Marines. Mm-hmm. What year did you join? Spring of 1995. Uh, how old were you at the time? I turned 20 my first week of boot camp. So you waited a little while after mm-hmm. high school. Two years, yeah. What was like the motivating factor? Like, why did you decide to join? Well, after high school, went to community college wasn't working out very well. So my brother was in the Marines from 1986 to 1992. So that plant, you know, that seed was planted with him, with him being in and, you know, formidable years for myself. And so when the school wasn't working out and the recruiters kept calling, I just eventually said, sure, let's, uh, let's go ahead. Did you have a lot of military family? No, not at all. We had uh, one uncle on my dad's side. It was in the Air Force maybe some cousins who were in the army, uh, nothing directly from my mom or dad's side of the family. So my brother was the first person that I'd ever known to have joined the Marine Corps. I didn't know what the Marine Corps was until he joined in 86. What was his reasoning? Uh, my brother was definitely a, um, like an overachiever, I would say overachiever, but he always enjoyed a challenge. Uh, so he looked at the Marine Corps as a way to get out of Freeport and also challenge himself to be uh, the best that he could be. So. What was his MOS? He started out as, I don't know the number for it, he was a radio man. And then I think his second or third year in the Marines, he did the recon, reconnaissance in doc, uh, qualified for that and joined the recon team out of uh, Hawaii. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, so he was- a super uh, sweet job. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, he very much enjoyed it. So. How long was he in for? <laughs> uh, six years total, so. So he was out before you went in? Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah, a couple years. <clears throat> what was your MOS? 35, 31, so motor transport. How does it, I don't know, I, so I was in the Army, like how mm-hmm. does it work with Marines? Like do you pick your job? Like is that part of when you go to MEPS? Yeah, I think uh, from what I remember, you know, you take your, your ASVAB and they tell you here are your options and who knows if those are your real options or not, uh, you know. Um, it's the needs of whatever, of right. the core at that point, right? And so. they just... Yeah, I signed up for motor transport. I wanted to be a mechanic, but uh, when they shipped me off, he said, you're going to be an operator or driver. So, but so it was like five tons, deuce and a half, stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Humvees. And that was 98? 95. 95. Mm-hmm. Wow. How long did you do? Eight years total. So four active and then four years in the reserves. 
So you get out in 99 mm-hmm. and you go into the reserves. What did you do? Came back here, came back to the Pittsburgh area. I uh, went back to that same community college I flunked out of <laughs> four years earlier. Uh, got a job, did one semester of school, passed all my classes, just didn't go back, uh, just kept working. Uh, so tree work in the reserves, uh, kind of settled it into the area, lived down closer to in the city, and just kind of enjoyed life uh, for a few years. So. So my understanding, like for the army, I was never in the reserves, but like mm-hmm. my buddies are in the reserves. Like it's a different mentality, like yes, than the active army. Is it the same with the marines? Absolutely. It was uh, it was definitely a culture change coming from active duty, and uh, I was a picked up sergeant along the way. So when I showed up the reserve unit within a few drills or a few months, I was put in charge of the maintenance platoon. So yeah, just working with reservists, uh, a lot of them are college students. Um, it was definitely different for me. Uh, adjusting to them and uh, it worked out eventually worked out well uh, eventually but the first couple of years that is a lot of uh, adjustment issues for me <laughs> I guess slowing down a little bit because they were it was just a different pace and a different culture and yeah you got a corporal rubbing shoulders and with a master sergeant you know an E4 hanging out with an E8 in my mind that just blew my mind uh, coming from the active duty side other than that I mean the men and the women who were there were awesome it was just settling down a little bit i guess when i was my first tour in afghanistan the first six months we were attached to uh shit what is that i can't remember it's three one or one three what's the guys out of hawaii pretty sure it'd be three one three one uh and like so their advice us like never fuck with a gunny like right. whatever you do never right. fuck with a gunny right like so but sounds like in the reserves you can fuck with a gunny right like yeah some units uh, our unit was that way and it was it was just weird I, it's the, uh, the best way to describe it for me and I, I felt kind of isolated and there was only one or two other active prior active duty guys there and they were all reservists and yeah career reservists and it's yeah that's how my mentality was it's anything above an e6 if you were below you just you just didn't talk to them unless they were talking to you yeah no direct eye contact right, none of that right. shit <laughs> yeah exactly so like it wasn't did it not feel like the marines to you as much it didn't um that's a it's a great question because it really didn't at first and i i think as it was a different type of marine corps and as i got older and then once we deployed in 2003 i really learned that these reservists, it, kind of their skill set came out, uh, you know, during that deployment, we were there in the invasion. So there was a lot of, you know, figuring out stuff on the fly. And these were some well-educated young men that we were, that were, was in our unit. And that came to work out very well and, and rely on their ingenuity and, uh, and their skill and life experience, much more so than a, an active duty unit where there would be that, I'm a corporal, you're the PUC, you go do it. I, I learned to rely on the their skill sets and their life skills, as I mentioned, a little bit more than I probably would have if we were a straight active duty unit. 99, is that when you got there? Correct, yeah, yeah. 99, so what was, was there a, a change in mentality like after September 11th? Well, it's funny, it, uh, for most people listening to this, they'll understand this, but uh, so I was active duty and then you have your four years of reserve time. During those four years of reserve time, you can do active reserve where you show up every drill or inactive reserve. So approximately July 2001, I switched over to inactive reserve. So I didn't go to drill, but I was still on the roster. And then after September 11th, I came back 
uh, I think it was November drill, I came back. So I was only, I only missed, and no one actually realized that was gone except for the guys <laughs> in my platoon and squad. So everyone else was like, oh, where'd you go? And so, it, so I was right back in it. But after that, um, yeah, there's definitely- um, Did you volunteer to come back or was it just like, oh, oh yeah. everybody's coming yeah. back? Yeah, it was kind of one of those things like everyone was asking me if I was coming back and, and I did come back. Uh, was there like much of a process to that? Like, did you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork or you just show no. back up again? <laughs> no, not for going inactive. It was, yeah, it was essentially I signed a form saying I was going inactive and I signed another form saying I was coming back to active reserve. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, things got more intense. I think the vibe around the place, uh, the reserve unit got more intense. There was a lot more, you know, information, a lot more questions coming from the troops. And then it was late, I would say 2002, where we started catching wind that we would be activated. So, so did the training change much? Like, okay, let's put it this way. So prior to September 11th, like how much trigger time did you guys get like over the course of a year? About once a year, we go to the range. Once a year? Yeah. So for a reserve unit, that's actually not bad because we're in the Marine Corps, you have the group and you have division. So basically the division is the infantry side and group is infantry support. So on active duty, I was with group. So I never went to the field. It was PT in the morning and home by you know 4 30 so and spend the day in the motor pool yeah exactly that was it uh driving around camp pendleton that uh in reserve in the reserves that was fourth marine division so every other drill we were in the field you know driving out to camp dawson driving out to fort Indian town gap uh, i spent more time in the field as a reservist than i did on active duty so i think yeah a little bit uh that following 2002 there was a bigger push to get everyone make sure everyone had licenses were up to date make sure all the gear was good to go um but yet with no real clear indication that we would actually go anywhere. In the army, like I was in Motor T too, right? Okay. So like the most miserable fucking thing on earth is like PMCS, right? Like <laughs> yeah. where you just go out there and you just yeah. fucking look at the trucks yeah, and you just start them and yeah. you look for shit that's not broken or you find shit that's been broken for six months that you've told the mechanics about for the last six right. months. and. right. They keep making you go back and mark it on the fucking form over and over. Is it the same way in the Marines? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. yeah it's, you know, how do, you know, you show up one drill and all the trucks start and then you show up the next drill and none of them start. Half of them got flat tires. <laughs> yeah. And for trucks that never moved anywhere and had probably less than 10,000 miles, there was always something leaking or wrong on them. So. Uh, yeah, I see yeah. people that like buy old military Humvees and drive yeah. them around and I have no uh, fucking idea why they do that. Cause like you can't drive a Humvee more than ah, 40 miles without like a half shaft <laughs> break in or fucking goddamn tire yeah. rolling off of it. Yeah. I if you got a good one, one yeah. I'd say like probably one out of a hundred was designed and actually built to what they were supposed to do. And those ones were awesome to drive, but uh, the rest of them just fell apart. Yeah. Yeah. Pieces of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the five tons, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Crap. Seven tons we got were were pretty legit uh they were push drive so there was no everything was drive by wire so you know the push for the changing gears push button for changing gears and the the gas and brake pedal or the fuel and brake pedal were uh all wire so those were those were a lot of fun to drive so as a nco you were e5 still Mm -hmm. yeah you didn't do much driving i imagine right you were you would tc and ride the passenger seat actually um i eventually got all my licenses for vehicle recovery. So at Evansburg, I was in charge of maintenance platoon, but I was also in charge of uh, the two wreckers that we had. So I did, anytime there was convoys, I was typically driving a wrecker or, or one of our, so yeah, I actually did a lot more driving than I would have if I was on active duty. Yeah. And then, especially in the case we got deployed, yeah, I was driving a lot, so. So when did you get your deployment notice? Probably first week of January, 2003. 
And like, what did it say? Like, what? It said show up to the uh, reserve center, and um, within seventy-two hours or forty-eight hours, I believe it was. Um, yeah, we showed up and said we're getting activated and hurry up and wait. And we sat, we basically sat in Evansburg for three more weeks, uh, just waiting to go somewhere. So you didn't know if it was Iraq, Afghanistan, you had no idea no. what? Uh, Southwest Asia is all they were telling us up until- Narrows it down. <laughs> yeah, narrows it down. Uh, Southwest Asia, I think until we were in Germany in February 14th, 2003, and they finally told us we're flying into Kuwait. And we got on a plane and flew into Kuwait. <laughs> so how long were you in Kuwait for? That was around February 15th, uh, Camp Matilda, which was out closer to the border. And we were there up until the invasion. Uh, which was what March twentieth. Yeah. So you by the time you got to Kuwait, you're like, all right, it's like we're Iraq bound. Yeah, that was the general consensus at that point. As more and more and more and more troops and gear showed up, uh, yeah, we were just basically waiting for the flag to go up and head north. What day did you guys cross over? The first night of the invasion. So that night, uh, we got our truck company. Uh, we were all there's about ninety of us. We got to spread out all over the first Marine Division. Uh, and um, so about the that night, we crossed the berm. Uh, we're myself and another truck, and there was a total of five of us. We were hauling extra artillery for the 11th Marines, and uh, so we had a basically got a grid coordinate, and we we're told to go find this battery of artillery. And we drove out there, and they politely asked us why we were there. <laughs> so we showed them all the extra rounds we had on our trucks, and essentially we just followed them for. Uh, four days, I believe, but we crossed the berm through the berm with them that night of the first day. And these were soft skin trucks, right? Like there's no yeah. upper armor on them at the time. Exactly. These are just regular old seven tons, uh, no extra armor. We actually, we put sandbags in the floor of the seven tons, but eventually took all the sandbags out because it was just too uncomfortable. Yeah. So, so, so you're driving around unarmored with a shit ton of uh, high explosive artillery rounds in the back. Absolutely. Yeah. In the dark with did no you, headlights. Did you did you guys at least uh, like one truck had the powders, one truck had the the fuses, one truck had the uh yeah, I think the rounds. Yeah, depending on what type of rounds they were, that type of stuff would be in the trailer. Uh so yeah, but what we were hauling, I, I forget the actual name of them, but they were essentially the the clusters that ah, would, okay. uh, you know, ignite proximity meters above ground. Um, so once we showed up with those, uh, the, the cannon guys got pretty excited because they don't fire those very often, apparently. Yeah. So when we had them in our truck, they, we were their best friends. And But it was neat. We ended up, um, you know, having to offload and onload in between them firing uh, on the line and then jump in the trucks and follow them to the next spot. Because you weren't like at a fob, right? Like it was just no. you're just in the desert shooting shit. Yes. From wherever. And then it's like, all right, we've destroyed all of these buildings let's right. flank it get on another position and then yeah blow some more shit let's up go sit in a convoy for 14 hours and uh, uh so eventually that that carried on for i think almost a good week and again that's who we crossed the berm with and uh and then we got s separated from them and attached to a combat service support battalion uh, and then from there uh we really literally beans bullets band-aids good guys bad guys uh everything um Throughout the course, I would say, of course, of the first two months, two to three months. So, gypsies. It was the best way to describe it was, was gypsies. Gypsy living, washing our clothes in buckets, uh, shade, you know, getting haircuts on the side of the road. Um, if we 
you know, we had for your hauling food. Uh, we didn't touch any of that food. That was always for the, the infantry that we were supporting and it would drive anywhere, everywhere, just hours and hours and hours on end. You know, you were motor T. So, I mean, some yeah. of these convoys would be 24, 30 hours. Yeah. Um, Did you have anywhere that's ostensibly like your home base? Was not there- for the first couple of weeks. I think eventually we ran into outside of Baghdad. We were in an old factory. Uh, it was a truck factory. And we stayed there for a couple of weeks. And it's it, funny story that actually blew up. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, uh, from there, uh, half of us uh, went up to Decrit, uh, the push up to Decrit, which was the task force Taro, I believe it was called. And then uh, we came back and like I said, that that was an old truck factory. Uh, and what they had was in the back of the factory, uh, just the extra artillery rounds that we were hauling extra ammunition, like a makeshift ammo dump. And apparently some of that caught fire one day and just exploded. No one was injured, destroyed three of our seven tons Shit. and uh, all the gear, two of our seven tons and all the gear of those four guys that are in those trucks in it. So all their personal belongings, they, they had the clothes on their back. Uh, the ammo tech guys had to come and then uh, EOD had to come clean it up. And what was funny about the, what makes the story funny is uh, just the, the intelligence of the military. So you have these giant ammo dump, I don't know, 50 yards in size and width. And they say, okay, we're going to blow it up. And we were inside a compound, but you can't go away. <laughs> so like, don't hide under any trucks and, uh, you know, just sit there. And they blew up this ammo dump and we just, it was a, pretty intense explosion and we're like oh that was really cool you know everyone's you know cheering and then all the shrapnel from said ammo dump <laughs> starts raining down on top of us uh hitting off our kevlars and you know some guys are getting stuff in the legs but you couldn't go anywhere but they're like we got to blow it anyway but it was all the eod guys said don't climb underneath trucks but all every soon as that thing went off all of them went underneath their trucks and hid <laughs> So I do something was coming then, but uh, well, that's why they didn't yeah. want you climbing under the trucks because they needed Take their somewhere spots. for them to get. Right. Yeah, exactly. Motherfuckers, that's how they work. <laughs> but that, that was a lot of fun. So how did you guys like get the supplies? Like, so you're just driving around and you would mm-hmm. get a call say, "Hey, go to this place, pick up X, and then take it to right." Z. Yeah, essentially, yes. Yeah. Essentially, we would uh, we would be able to you know pretty close to the front lines and then returning to the kind of rear echelon, collecting gear and and moving back up and and sometimes we would have. Uh, infantry in our back of our truck at one point we had uh we were in uh, diwania iraq and that's this was later on i would say may time frame it was right around my birthday we were in a compound that was a former iraqi military compound so we actually had a decent sized place to you know sleep and and birth and uh and and the cbs had made showers and and restrooms for us and uh one night, the uh, army guys came, military police came and collected us up because they had, uh, there was bad guys <laughs> stealing oil uh, out in the middle of the desert and they busted them. So they said, hey, you guys know how to drive trucks. We're going to take you out where you have all these Haji trucks, you know, Haji's local trucks. And uh, we're going to collect up all the bad guys and you're going to take all the trucks filled with the stolen fuel back to Diwania and return it. So we drive out there. We ended up loading a bunch of uh, the prisoners on some back of our one of our trucks, and uh, but maybe you know, you know an offshoot to the story was because I was a sergeant, I got to ride in one of the army turtlebacks. Yeah, and it had air conditioning. Oh yeah, and all these these army guys, you know, 
I, I love the Army. I love all the soldiers now. But that, in that moment of time, I hadn't felt air conditioning in like months. And these guys are yucking it up in their turtle back with air conditioning. And I'm like, oh, I didn't say a word to them. I just rode out there. I was, it was a little upset that my seven ton didn't have air conditioning. But anyway, we got to load up all the bad guys. And anyway, I got to drive a Haji truck uh, back to Diwania. And, uh, and it had 5,000 gallons, like a sheets truck. Was yeah. the size with the fuel. And I got to drive that back to Diwania and, and park it. And we eventually had to go offload it, which was a whole nother story. So we fast forward a week later after this uh, of, you know, collecting up the trucks that had the stolen fuel. And now we had to take over one part of Diwania to the other side of town to offload the fuel back to this, the refinery. So long story short, the, the truck gets stuck and uh, we end up having to unload the fuel from this big sheets tanker truck and put it into a, an empty tank because the trucks broke down. And um, the for some whatever reason, trailers didn't match up the trucks because the Hajis, they just, I don't know what they were doing. So, so we ended up having a conversation throughout the entire day with these locals. Uh, I swear, swear to God, this local Haji had a perm, a mullet, and a tie-dyed shirt on, and a trunk full of tools. And so he, they were all super nice. And uh, so he's trying to help us out. And we had, in the truck that I was driving was literally a stack, probably a foot high of Iraqi money, dinars. And I gave that entire stack of money to this dude. And I said, help me out. And he was my best friend the rest of the day. Literally didn't leave my side uh, for the rest of the day. But he had a friend who was you know, in a traditional garb. He had the robe and, the, and, and he was a traditional Iraqi dress. And so eventually it's getting dusk. Uh, we started this morning in the, this day early in the morning, it's getting dusk and, and uh, we're trying to figure out how to get the fuel from the full tank into the empty tank so we can go on our way. And um, so they say pump truck, like, oh, like a, a pump truck. So that's what we need, a pump to pump the fuel because we're in the middle of nowhere. So um, they, uh, they show up with this jalopy of like a, a chem, you know, like the true green trucks that drive around and spray your lawns. Yeah. This thing looks like it was from the 60s, just rickety. It looked terrible. But anyway, we're all excited because they got the, everything hooked up. We're pumping the truck, the fuel from the big full tanker to the empty one. All the while they're negotiating with how much fuel that I'm going to leave with them. So we're drawing lines in the dirt on this, <laughs> in this, you know, tanker and, we finally get to an agreeable point. I don't know how. I don't. I don't speak any Arabic. They don't speak any English. We're just having fun. So, the pumps pumping diesel fuel flying everywhere because uh, all their hoses are dry rotted. But I don't care. This is this is actually happening, and it's getting done. And this day is going to end. And then two things happen that I'll will stick with me for the rest of my life. The one Ara uh, Iraqi guy was telling me he was in through a very broken English and that he was in the Iraq-Iran war. And he grabs my hand and, and puts it on his belly and he has bullet wounds. So in that moment, I was so taken back that he had grabbed my, I didn't even think to like grab my gun or to push him back. I just remember him grabbing it and I can still feel it like his hot, sweaty gut. <laughs> it was kind of gross, but I could feel the bullet wounds. And he was like, we're brothers we're so you're a soldier i'm a soldier and in that moment he was just like sharing this boastful moment of you know of him being you know through battle and having these scars and now we're here helping him out and it was really really a wild moment and uh it still it still resonates today but so a few minutes later 
I call up a seven ton to shine some light on because it's getting dark. And out of the corner of my eye, uh, the pump truck sparks. And diesel fuel itself doesn't burn, but the, the, fumes. Fumes, the fumes burn. And as I mentioned, there's this stuff sprayed everywhere. And I mean, the whole pump truck goes up. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, life flashes before my eyes. And I, I, I open my eyes and I still have all my eyebrows. I'm not on fire. And I'm like, I think to myself, just run. <laughs> and as I'm running, there was two of my Marines, uh, Renner and Baker. And I'm screaming their names as we're running away from this, this fireball, essentially. And uh, they were okay. And I, I didn't see any of the, the locals anymore after this. Two hours later, all the fire goes out. And the lieutenant comes up and says, well, you were explaining the situation. He's like, well, did you get the fuel out of the tanker? I was like, no, sir. He's like, well, carry on. I was like... <laughs> Hi, sir. So if we, we, we get another pump, uh, this time we get a, a, a military pump uh, and it's ran off of gasoline. And we, we got some engineers and I think by like two in that morning, we had uh, successfully transferred the fuel and we left the burned up Camelon truck, the broken down truck and the burned up tanker uh, <laughs> lair wherever we were at and just left the place. I don't know what happened to any of those things that day. Jesus. So it was a pretty long day. But uh, that's why I tell people about, you know, deploying, it's, you know, it's such, and you know this, it's such, you know, you think about traditional, de- you know, combat environment, what you see in the movies, and it's such a dangerous environment. You know, there's there's something that can kill you almost every day, and then you have to go fight people. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's really wild to think that we can, as many people who deploy and go over there, do come home yeah. without injuries. We, we, we obviously know the, the men and women who, who uh, you know, suffer injuries and don't come back at all, but to go through something that violent and with that many moving parts and to come home you know, unscathed virtually is still boggles my mind 15 yeah. years later. It's weird like how dangerous like normal life is over there for those yeah. guys. Like, yeah. um, so it's one night in Jalalabad, it's my first tour. It's like, I don't know, like two, three in the morning, we're sleeping in our little tense and i hear the loudest fucking explosion of my life i'm sure like i'm positive it has to be like a v-bid or mm-hmm. like something some some sort of enemy attack and we, like <laughs> go out of the tent and look and like across the way was uh so we would have the we called them jingle trucks like the uh the haji trucks yeah, that yeah. come in the crazy horns and there was uh, what's called a cook-off yard because mm. we want to make sure they didn't have any like timed ieds attached right. to them so we'd make them sit 48 hours over there wow so one of them was a fuel truck and like the dude gets there and they're like go to the cook-off yards because cook-off yard and he unbeknownst to him has a fuel leak uh and he gets under it and he like sets up like a fucking pot and a yeah. sterno can and he's like gotta cook Good a hand, meal <laughs> lights that motherfucker oh, up dude boom that goddamn truck oh. full of uh, about 800 to 1,000 gallons yeah. of jet fuel explodes. <laughs> I was just like, Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. Like uh, Some dude trying to eat his lunch. Yeah. And he's just like, no no fucks given, right? Yeah. Like, he's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to get under here and light this shit ablaze under my fuel truck. <laughs> uh, yeah, that shit's wild, man. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, that's just regular life for those folks. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't. There's no yeah. OSHA over there, you know what I mean? Like, there's nobody regulating what a work environment's like. Not at all. And it's uh, and uh, what was what was amazing about that story was, you know, we 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 need gas. We go to Sheets, get go, whatever. How happy they were to have just to be around diesel fuel. You know, it's you know, 
they were splashing it on their faces and they singing and dancing. I'm like, we're in the middle of nowhere <laughs> with a broken down truck. And and this is the best day of their lives. And then uh, it was. It yeah, was, shit's uh, hard to come yeah. by for them, man. It's yeah. more valuable than gold almost. Earlier that day, and this is a, a Pittsburgh thing. Um, I don't know if you were a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates back in the 90s, but they had the uh, Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Jay Bell. Uh, they're called the Killer Bees was kind of their, their catchphrase name. Well, there was a, a little boy, Iraqi boy, who had a Pittsburgh Pirates Killer Bees t-shirt on that he probably got from like you know, Red Cross or, or whatever. And we saw him and we were just like, this is amazing and totally freaked his mother out because here are all these, you know, gun laden Marines uh, working on this broken down truck who were just super excited and trying to take pictures with this kid. And mom was just freaking out. And eventually we got it to where she just let us take a picture. I don't know if she knew what we were talking about. We we're trying to, you know, you know, no, we didn't have any interpreters or anything. We we're just trying to say, like, that's where we're from. And I don't know who has that picture. I, somebody has that picture somewhere. But but that was uh, to have see him with that little Killer Bees T-shirt on was just so surreal. And that moment was so surreal. You know, I know we freaked them all out really bad. <laughs> what I would always find funny is like occasionally you'd be driving around and you would see like a teenager or kid wearing like a Western shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like it was probably like once a month, like we would see a kid and it would be like um, like when the Steelers lost to the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. What was that like, like 90? 90. 95. 95, yeah, right? 96. And so a kid's got on like a 96 Pittsburgh Super Bowl championship <laughs> shirt because like they pre-print <laughs> right, all of their these, shirts. Yeah, so all yeah. the ones like whatever team loses, they ship that shit overseas. Right. It's like humanitarian aid. So you always see these kids wearing these fucking shirts of like people who've never won a World Series. <laughs> yeah, That's great. In I mean, retrospect, it's like, man, I should have like bought that shit, right. dude, because I bet it, that stuff goes for a ton on eBay now. <laughs> <laughs> At least it doesn't get wasted. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. So how long how long were you over there total? Uh, let's see here. I believe we got uh, in country February fifteenth, and then I was home early September, first couple of weeks of September. So it's like eight months, something like that. Yeah, just about. Yeah, and with that, I immediately got out. Uh, my ES, my eight year contract was up in May of two thousand three, so we got activated. I I wasn't given orders to go because I was there's stop loss. There was no. They hadn't enacted the stop loss yet or whatever. Got the terminology right. So I didn't have orders to get deployed with my unit because I was supposed to get out a couple months. So I I asked them and they said, well, you can re-enlist. I was like, that's crazy. That's not going to happen. And they said, you can do a one-year extension. So I signed a 12-month extension to get deployed. And when I came back, they said, you know, hey, it's not going to tear it up, but you know, you don't have to drill or anything. Just sign here. Well, you're out. So I didn't tell anybody in my family until I came back from deployment that I didn't have to go, that I signed sure. a one-year extension to go. I think I might've told my brother who was in because he was the only one who really would have understood it. But I definitely didn't tell my mom until I got back that I had signed extension to go in the first place. So, uh, yeah, she found that very But it never crossed your mind to re-enlist? Did, no, no. When, when I got back from Iraq, it was I was out. You're I like, was, fuck that. Out. Yeah, completely out. I went... Kuwait, Iraq to home, out of the Marine Corps, probably within 30 days. Oh, shit. Which was, in hindsight, not... I should have stuck around a few more drills and... Uh, kind of decompressed. Absolutely, yeah. It was definitely uh, not a, a smooth transition. When in high, you know, the opposite side of my brother, who was in... Uh, he was in Desert Storm. Funny story, if anybody who's listened, you know, people who listen, the, the Battle of Kofji was one of the major battles of Desert Storm. There was two recon Marine units trapped in the city, surrounded by... Lots of Iraqi forces. 
Uh, my brother was in one of those two teams. They hit out and then f- called in artillery all around them and then blazed guns out of the city. One of the major battles of Desert Storm. So, but when he, we didn't see him for about a year and a half because he was in Hawaii, got activated, deployed, was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think he was over there for almost a year, came back to Hawaii and then another, I think, six months before he came home. So he had the kind of the opposite uh, transition for him. And so it was interesting to kind of compare and contrast uh, his experience in basically the same part of the world. Uh, you know, however many years difference, 11, 12 years difference. So. Yeah. So at any point over there, did you ever get into like a, a normal routine? Later on, uh, when we were in Nazaria, and, and this is where it's different than, you know, a couple of years later when you had the, you know, the, in your behind the wire and outside the wire. So this was in, this was in Nazaria, Diwania, and then in Nazaria where we had, uh, we were just supporting line companies or infantry. Uh, that was in Diwaneo. We were supporting, I believe it was three, five, and they would just go around sweeping neighborhoods and we'd drive out there and sometimes, uh, you know, go on the patrols with them. And that was pretty routine. Uh, it was, that was the summertime. It was getting pretty quiet. I remember in Nazaria, 4th of July, we played volleyball all day with the, the Italians. So that was pretty laid back. So it was, it got pretty quiet and, and somewhat boring uh, during that point. Uh, and I know by the time that next summer, uh, you know, things had pretty ramped up again and, and a little bit more, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty bad for the number of years, but that, yeah. it was pretty quiet that, that late summer of uh, 2003. Did you guys make a lot of contact before it started to cool yeah. down? Oh yeah. The first couple months in were, you know, during the invasion in the push up to Baghdad, the push up into the crit. Yeah. There was your more stereotypical combat environment. So, you know, I, as this in, was like pre IEDs though, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's so this more was traditional like, stuff. Like yeah. gun Gunfights. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's funny. Uh, I, as an operator, the only thing I ever actually fired at were dogs. <laughs> the next day, the day during the day, they'd be out. Uh, and at night, they'd, they'd tear your shit up. And if you left trash out, and you know, this, they would, man, they were super scary. And uh, so we tried to keep wherever we were staying because we didn't have fences or anything. Uh, sometimes we would go out and either fire at or try to scare them away during the day. But uh, between driving and, and there was many times we the firefight to be right up the road from us or right off to the side of the road from us. But uh, we never actually had to, from our weapon, myself and my driver actually have to uh, fire a weapon. So that was interesting. You go in and you know, think combat, you think you're going to be Rambo and all this stuff. And you, know, you end up being a somewhat of a observer a lot of times. So that was that was interesting. But definitely plenty of scary moments and, and, and plenty of close calls. But uh, And then it was weird because we had you know, 90 guys went over, you know, it was vastly different in my truck. We'd ever had to fire in other trucks. They were in, in some pretty heated battles with uh, the, the units they were supporting. So it was really hit or miss what you got. I ask everybody this, man. Do you remember like the first time do you remember like distinctly, like no shit getting shot real. at and yeah. be like, what, what the, f- what yeah. the fuck? And it takes you a second. And then yeah. you realize like, Oh shit, these people are shooting at us. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, we had to loaded up our artillery, and uh, we went up to find the, the artillery battery that we were going to support. This is before we crossed the berm. Uh, we get there the day before. It was late afternoon. And then we set up behind the firing line. And we, we dug our fighting pits away from the trucks, you know, like you're taught to do. And we slept in the trucks. And the next morning, we wake up and we hear like this thumping. And we're like, what's that? And it was scuds coming from the border over to us. Uh, and I'm like, oh, all right. And we're just kind of like 
what do we do? <laughs> kind of like all looking around and then someone yelled gas. And uh, oh, that's shit. where we donned our, our gas gear. So we go jumping into our, our little fighting pit we had off the side of the truck. And I wear glasses. I didn't wear my contacts because if we had got gas, I didn't want my contacts diffused in my eyeballs. Although I probably would have been dead anyway. So right. it So uh, I can't. I couldn't get my gas mask to seal. So there's me and a couple other Marines in the uh, fighting hole. They got their gas mask sealed. We're sitting there. We're just kind of they, you know, hearing the rounds come in. They weren't super close, but close enough. And I couldn't get my gas mask to seal. And I finally just said, fuck it. Ripped that gas mask off. And I just looked at those guys. And they looked at me as like, I was like, well, I'm going to be the first one to know if we got gas. Yeah. I just, I just sat there. And You're then, the fucking canary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was, you know, I was pegged at 120% at that point. And uh, after that, things slowed down. You know, that was like, that was the moment where the oh shit moment. And after that, you know, things really slowed down. For, and I was able to observe and make decisions a lot more clearly. And I'm glad I had that experience early on. But yeah, a couple of times we were, we did get fired upon. It was just like that weird like that verping, whistling sound. You're like, what is that? <laughs> but you're so naive. Yeah. You're like, who is shooting at me? Who is the son of a bitch? You know? yeah. You're like, oh, get down. How oh, dare yeah, this motherfucker? Yeah. Don't, don't they know we're Americans? I'm a really nice guy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. So it, that was weird. <laughs> it's one of those things like, um, and it's universal. Like took the World War II vets, Vietnam, Korea, like all the training we went through, there's no way to simulate well, okay, so I guess you could, very dangerous, mm -hmm. but to simulate, to give someone a, the understanding of what an incoming bullet sounds right. like, you know what I mean? Like, right. so the first time you hear it, you're like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, you have no idea. You're, and then yeah. like, it it seems like it's like a minute, but it's like two or three seconds. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you're like, oh, that must be what a bullet sounds like right. when it's right. coming in your direction. Because then, like, because you hear the, the and you can feel it, mm -hmm. and then you hear the the muzzle come from a few mm -hmm. hundred yards away, and you're like, oh shit, they're shooting at us. This is crazy. <laughs> I've read about shit like this. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen movies about this. That's, you know, I never was a military historian, and it wasn't even until the last three or four years that I really, you know, started getting into the work that I do now and reading a lot of books about that. So, that was super naive. And my brother, when he got back, um, I remember when he, we first came home, he stayed with us. And this was probably a year, let's say 12 to 18, maybe a year after Desert Storm. Uh, the wake him up in the morning. If we were to wake him up, because he worked, I remember him, I remember him working night shifts. So if we needed to wake him up for anything, it would, as we walked down the hallway, we'd have to pound on the, the wall or make loud steps so we weren't sneaking up on him and it's, but uh, and you, you don't want that k-bar under his pillow yeah. going through your chest <laughs> well it was it was right at the side of his bed it, it was he wasn't hidden it was right there <laughs> you know and he told a couple stories right when he came home but then he never you know we, we never really had an opportunity to hey a couple like you know stupid stories you know but we never really had an opportunity to sit down and uh you know share our our experiences uh over there you know combat experiences and um so now that was, uh, you know, the one experience we did have, which was, you know, again, very touching moment for me was because he's the only one who knew what was coming for me. And because, um, you know, no one else in our family had served or anything. And this was 2003. So, you know, we were the first ones to go over and one of the first groups to come back. So this was January 2003. This was right where we got activated before we left for Camp Lejeune and then eventually left Camp Lejeune to, to Kuwait. But getting ready to finally leave Lejeune. I think I came home or whatnot and we're getting ready to go. And so anyway, long story short, 
we're out in the driveway at my mom's house, uh, I think cleaning off the cars from snow or something. We were meeting the rest of the family for dinner. And uh, so my brother, he he says, I got something for you. And he hands me this this pocket knife and I have here. And uh, for some reason, it had a $100 bill in it, which I, he still could never explain why he felt like putting a $100 bill in it. But anyway, he's like, I just wanted to give you something. Uh, and and he, <clears throat> I always get I always get emotional telling the story. But um, it just, I, I, I've never seen my brother cry. And he's the, the toughest man I've ever known. And unfortunately, he passed away a, a couple of years ago from cancer. But he, he came with this pocket knife and, and just said, keep your head down. I mean, it was such an intense moment and I didn't really completely understand it, but I, and I've never seen him have that look at his face and I've, I've been, I haven't seen it since. And But coming back and now, you know, 15 years later and doing all the work I do now with, with combat veterans, I mean, I know that look and I know he knew what I was about to go through. And there wasn't, you know, as a big brother, <clears throat> it wasn't anything he could do to protect me other than follow your training and keep your head down. Yeah. So it was a, it was a pretty, you know, at the moment I didn't really completely absorb it as much as I wished I had or wished I had. So, uh, but it was, uh, that was the only time we got to share any type of experience other than, uh, you know, grab ass stories or acting stupid and, you know, one jar head to another. So, yeah. So he came back and he lived with you guys for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you said his, because his transition was different. Do you, you think his was better because he went back and like had that decompression time and got to kind of slowly so. yeah. assimilate back into society? I think so. You know, he was always a very type A personality and went right into uh, security and then eventually police work. And that's always what he wanted to do. And so I think personalities were quite different. So I have to take that into consideration. But I think, um, yeah, having that time with the Marines he served with to kind of you know, decompress, clean your gear, relax, uh, blow off some steam um, without having to answer a lot of questions, without having to be called a hero all the time, yeah. uh, without having to, you know, constantly trying to process however many months of this experience into, you know, your neighbor asking you 20 questions about it. So I, I think in that aspect, it might've been a little better. And that'd be a great question. I'd love to ask him and compare notes with, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, um, uh, it made a little bit of a difference for us, uh, when we compare those two things. Well, that's an interesting point. Like, cause the hero thing, cause like when you got back in 03, like everybody was still on fucking hardcore Patriot boner, right? right. Like, so oh, yeah. oh, fucking yeah. yellow ribbons everywhere, yep. American, American flags, flags everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. People fucking shake your hand. Yeah. Tell you what a great job you did, even though they didn't have a fucking clue what you were doing over there. Right. Because you didn't fucking have a clue what you were doing over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I just wanted to come home. I uh, wanted to make sure that my Marines came home. And, and we were lucky enough that on that, uh, all of us did come home. There's a few injuries. Um, all the guys we went over there with, you know, all came back. Were you yeah. the only one that got out as soon as you got back? No, there was a handful of us. It's what was tough. And I think that following summer, they got redeployed. And the same pocket knife I gave to... The guy who was my A driver is ironically still in the Marine Corps. He's a warrant officer now. I gave him that pocket knife for his deployment and he took it over and brought it back to me when he came back. So kind of a good luck charm. And I still have it now. And uh, no, it was, it was tough when they deployed again and again. So some of the Marines I, I went over there with have served two or three more deployments. I pulled away. I was really kind of 
kind of shamed, embarrassed that I didn't sign back up again. And, you know, my life had moved on and I didn't know quite how to process those feelings. And uh, so I, I just pulled away altogether. And I, I, I really missed those those years that uh, I didn't stay in touch with a lot of those guys. And, you know, I actually just talked to one of my guys yesterday. He's retiring. Makes you feel old when one of your yeah. latest corporals or, you know, when you were a sergeant is now retiring as a gunny. So that makes you feel young. So, yeah, I think those couple years uh, when they were kept getting deployed and, and the, the second and third deployments were much more difficult than our first one. And, and you know, lost some guys along the way and, you know, and have some had a few suicides from our for units and deaths throughout the year. So it's uh, it's uh, you really wish you could go back and do certain things over again to have that better connection. So when you were like pulling back and just like were, was a part of you, like, did you ever consider going back in? Hmm. I did for a little bit. Um, I just started dating my wife. We've been together, well, uh, this month, last month, we've been together 14 years. So I started dating her not too long after I, I got out completely. So as we got more serious and, uh, you know, we had very, you know, you're, you're married, you've know, been very early on in relationship. You really can't be committal or whatnot, but, you know, she was in college and eventually law school and, you know, she made it clear that, you know, hey, this is if you did reenlist, that's going to be very hard on us. And, you know, I'm not sure how I would take that. And at that point, I I was only wanting to reenlist to go back over with my Marines. I didn't want the Marine Corps life anymore. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, not to put it all on her. I made, I made that decision on a couple of different factors, but I was really fed up with with being in the Marines. Uh, I mean, I'll always be in them. You you know this. I mean, I'm sure you love the Army and you, certain things you miss, but, you know. Not it, enough to go back. Right. <laughs> and it's a tough life. It's a suit. Yeah. Being in the military for Particularly if years, you're married, yeah, man. All you guys know that. It's so. Uh, all the guys I served with that were married, like, fucking almost everybody's divorced. Like, yeah. You just can't do that shit. Because, like, the guys, because I joined in 03, like, all my buddies that stayed in are, like, they're making first sergeant and shit yeah. now. And it's, like, I can count on one hand how many are still married to the same woman. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it, it just wrecks family because it, yeah. with the op tempo and how many deployments we've had to fucking do. Right. Like, I know guys that are on, strain. like, their seventh, eighth yeah. deployment. Like, it's, it's fucking crazy. It's insane. And, I, and you know, and you know, the work I do now with, with combat veterans, and I, you know, it's been 15 years now since the initial invasion. I mean, in my humble opinion, you know, those hardships are going to show up the next five to 10 years. And we saw this in Vietnam. It was uh, the late 70s, early 80s, where we really saw to see the, the impact of homelessness and drug addiction and uh, different things with the, the lack of readjustment for those Vietnam era veterans. And, you know, I talked to, I get an opportunity now, the work I do to talk to World War II, Korea, Vietnam era veterans, and they all, you know, the ones that are in treatment have, have gone to counseling, have processed their, their combat experience thoroughly or you know in a good way and they all say the same thing to the younger vets like don't bottle it in don't yeah. get it out go talk to somebody go do something about it don't drink try to drink it away and don't don't be a tough to, guy yeah yeah and it's it's so when i hear stuff I hear other veterans say well you know my my dad was in vietnam and he saw a bunch of shit and he doesn't have ptsd and 
Like, well, guess what, motherfucker? Yeah. Sure does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you know, you fundamentally change. You know how he sits yeah. there and drinks whiskey and stares out right. the window and doesn't talk to you? Like, right. that's BTSD, buddy. <laughs> or it gets out in the middle of traffic and, you know, tries to kick in somebody's door because they cut him off. And yeah. yeah. That's these things normal people don't do. So, yeah, it's uh, I really try to express those thoughts with the men and women that I encounter through work and through life and say, hey, it doesn't have to be this hard. You know, life doesn't have to be this hard. There's things out there uh, that can help you live a, a better, more filled, fulfilled life. And go check them out. Go see what you like. Yeah, I think it's like one of the it's our society has evolved in the last, you know, 75 years. Mm-hmm. World War II vets came back and they go to the bar, get pissed drunk, beat the shit out of somebody, you know, fight the cops, right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like, oh, well, that's just men being men, right? right. <laughs> Doing man <laughs> shit. Yeah. <laughs> but like we've got to the point in society where like, you go and you beat up some cops trying to get away from them. People are like, man, I, I think you might have a problem. Right. <laughs> it's not just you being letting off steam after yeah. work. You know what I mean? Well, I think, I mean, you know, you used World War II as an example. I mean, there was more t- buy-in, uh, more accountability from the entire nation in World War II than in war since. So I think that that's part of it too. I mean, you know, when, I forget who it says, you know, paraphrasing one of the higher-ups from, early 2003 said you know you you go to the mall we'll go to war and yeah. and that divide really i think has hurt us as a community and you know the one thing about world war ii it was a it was a community and everybody you know the victory gardens and and scrap metal and everything else yeah everybody ration made cards right yeah so it's uh i think that has hurt our, our nation as a community or uh and so yeah and it was it was different for them when they came back in the sense that um so you know the first world war started what 1914 mm-hmm. uh it lasted till so you had like six years of europe fucking bombing the shit out of itself right uh then you have a 20-year gap and then you have another seven years of europe bombing the shit out mm-hmm. of itself so when World War II vets came back here, it was like America was like the only place not smoldering, right? right. Like we had Japan was in ruins, China, right. uh, Russia. I mean, the whole world other than Southern Africa, Australia, and the U.S. were the only yeah. things relatively untouched. And so we by default became like the manufacturer of all of the world's goods. So mm-hmm. like we needed every swing and dick and Tom right. back to work. Right. So like you came back and there was... There was more like there were too many jobs you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like so it's totally different for us because we come back and i mean shit you you spend eight years in right so you get out you spend eight years you get out as an e6 or whatever like you've Mm -hmm. got all this experience but you don't have education so like your any job that that you can get like is Mm -hmm. gonna pay you eight bucks an hour nine bucks an hour and Mm -hmm. that's just demotivating as shit to guys when you're getting out you, you know you you don't make much money in the military but you can make like you know, 40 50 grand a year like enough to get by on mm-hmm. like your housing allowance and all that stuff and then you get out and your only options are you know minimum wage jobs basically right. minimum wage jobs that uh have no fulfillment whatsoever whereas you know when you're in the military at least you're you have a higher purpose a higher calling yeah. and if you're living on base you can save some money and rent and all those other things and you go to deployment to get combat pay hazard pay all that other stuff so it adds up. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of things. And I was just talking to somebody else about this the other day, and I said it really shouldn't, you know, career fairs for veterans, all, you know, unemployment for veterans, it really should be underemployment. And we need to change that marketing to where 
because veterans come back and they get jobs and the the you know, statistics prove it that they're you know some veterans veterans are able to find work and everybody wants to hire veterans they're not always qualified with the education as you mentioned and uh and that transition from you know military to school to work or military to work uh i think it's more of an underemployment where you know men and women are going back and getting any job they can make they're getting by but they might not be as as fulfilled as they once were and um you know that's that's sad to me uh having done the corporate thing for a number of years and willfully changed to come you know back to working with veterans so yeah you need to find that fulfillment of what you do and and uh and people don't recognize the the responsibility you have Mm -hmm. like being in the military Oh, like yeah. World War II, once again, you come back like, well, I was a platoon sergeant, so I was responsible mm. for, you know, 60, 70 other guys for three years as we killed Nazis, right. you know right. what I mean? And they were like, well, <laughs> all right, so you 70 people, so we'll make you a factory manager, you right. know what I mean? Like, uh, you've got, that's the equivalent experience. Yeah. Uh, now, like, there's some West Point graduates, right, that mm. were, I won't name the one, but was in logistics and was signed for a property book of like $150 million of equipment and gear, yeah. right? Came back and they're like, oh, we'll pay you 30 grand to, you know, yeah. work at a distribution center, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, fuck man, that person went to West Point. So that's basically Ivy League graduate and you're offering mm-hmm. them because you don't have any real work experience, right? Like right. your time in fucking Iraq and Afghanistan, that shit doesn't count. That's not real work experience. Right. So hmm. it's all fucked up, man. It is, and, I know, and there's lots of organizations doing, you know, trying to do the right thing, and 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 I think again that's when it goes back to like more of a community engagement into the issue, and uh, you know, instead of like I always say, I've been saying this for years. I mean, just don't, you know, ask a veteran, you engage why they why they join the military, why did they stay in, why why did they choose the branch they, you know, they served in, you know, because it's not like we get drafted anymore. Yeah, everybody serves, and if you if you enlisted after nine eleven. Yeah, you enlisted for a lot different reason than I did in 1995, sure. which was to get the hell out of Pittsburgh and and maybe get chicks because the dress blues look really cool. Literally, I give you that, that man. Was, Those that blues was, are sharp, dude. Was, that definitely went through my mind when I was <laughs> having hard days at, at Paris Island. Like, All right, this is gonna pay off when I look really kick ass in my dress blues. Uh, You're slaying so, it at the bar later on. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, it's uh. <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's different, and uh, and the more we continue the conversation, I think that's that's a good thing. Do you think because there's fewer of us than there are like Vietnam vets that the issues won't be as like prominent? Like mm-hmm. you know, like because Vietnam vets, like you ask somebody like, oh, what do you think like a Vietnam vet looks like? And a lot of times, like, oh, like the dude fucking talking to himself under the bridge. Right. You know what I mean? But because there's like there are millions of Vietnam vets, there are not that many post nine eleven vets, right? So yeah. do you think that um, that we'll have as long a memory with mm. like uh, the younger vets? Mm, that's a good question. That uh, I don't know. I worry that how uh, you know we have such a, a fast-paced society of uh, constant information and something better and newer, and more exciting happens every day. That uh, you know we have you know we have troops in Afghanistan and northern Africa and you know all over the world in harm's way that nobody really knows about. And then uh, to your point, I, I think because we are smaller and and our issues are oftentimes more hidden for whatever reason, I, I worry that the more we, we talk about mental health and taking care of veterans and all this stuff, it really won't make all that much difference because we're not 
it's not again the community is not being engaged with it yeah they're talking about it but not everyone's kind of bought into it uh, and it's i think it's easier for people who don't understand the military life and culture to see that guy under the bridge like you mentioned and say all right i can help that person out because i can give the money or i can i can do a food drive or you know i can support an organization like the vlp or veterans place and it's it's simpler than sitting down with someone and saying hey Why'd you join the Marines? Why'd you join the Army? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that that is a worry for me as well. That uh, this will kind of be swept under the rug, and something else more exciting will come along. Well, let me ask your opinion on this, man. This is because this is a radical idea, uh, and you're like in the counseling world. So you know, like the the big thing, like the 22 veteran mm-hmm. suicides a day, right? Uh, so I heard someone, and they made this. It sounded like actually a very good point to me. Was it would be better for us to stop talking about that number altogether mm-hmm. because the more we talk about it, you know, inevitably the more that some guy that's or girl that's struggling, like if you keep talking about suicide, 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 like mm-hmm. it's more likely that we put that idea in our head because we mm-hmm. keep talking about veteran suicide that if we stop talking about it and stop mm-hmm. making an issue of it, that it would probably lower the numbers. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh... – it's, it's ironic you asked that question because Monday and Tuesday this past week, I, went, I completed ASSIST, which is a suicide uh, intervention or suicide first aid training. It wasn't through the VA, it's through a, a Living Works uh, down at California University. Um, so yeah, it's uh, been on my mind this week. And I've never been a big fan of putting a number on that statistic because I think it it draws attention away from what the issue really is at hand when someone is, is thinking of taking their own life. Uh, it shouldn't be just a number. It should be about, you know, what's going on with them. But I think- uh, It's misleading number too. Because yeah, it's like, is, yeah. you know, when it, you hear it and you yeah. think, oh, 22 young vets. It's not. When it's almost exclusively- Older. Older, right. which for some reason that in the civilian population, that age group, there's a spike in suicides as well. So yeah, it's, it's a major life event, retirement. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, moving on with life, the empty nesters, you know, kids leaving the house. Uh, yeah. It's, so, majority of these aren't necessarily combat related. Exactly. Or even military exactly. experience related. They're just exactly. demographically driven. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, do I think when you talk about it, do you put the thought in someone's head? I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that. Um, I think the more you can talk about it, the more it might, uh, you know, if someone is is thinking about suicide, you know, it means something's not going right in their life. But if they're thinking about it and talking to someone about it, that that means they're still alive and that's a good thing. So I think the more you can talk about it, you know, I'd be interested to see if anyone's ever, it's kind of hard to tell. There's, there's, we were talking about this this training. uh, There's a, there's a documentary about people who uh, attempt to take their lives by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and the people who lived through it, they interview them. And the majority of them say they changed their mind as soon as they stepped off the bridge. So that it, it just shows that suicide for most is just someone having a really hard time. And if they're able to talk through it and, and, and get an intervention and get some support, uh, they can see that there's so much more to live for and then, you know, kind of pull themselves out of that darkness. So so I, I think it's a good thing that we we have conversations about it where it's not such a big thing. It, it becomes more of a community engagement, a cultural thing to be okay with talking about it. And uh, it shouldn't be, you know, it's very much a Pittsburgh thing, you know, to say, well, you know, that's somebody else's problem. You know, yeah. just, just worry about your own house 
and and that's okay you know and if so and so wants to hurt themselves well that's their problem and 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 that's just not a good way to approach it when you know we gotta think we're all americans we're all we all live here in this earth we we should be kinder and nicer to each other so i would be interested to see if there's any data on that if that talking about it puts those thoughts into people's mind because then that you definitely would want to change that approach and not you know feel like someone's being pushed into it because yeah. we're talking about it. There was a while there. It's like, man, you couldn't go on Facebook without yeah. like scrolling through and seeing somebody fad. doing 22 pushups a day right. or getting a 22 tattoo or yeah. uh, fucking all the shirts, all these companies made millions of dollars off of capitalizing yeah, off of this go? shit. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's more of an issue for our society. Uh, you know, to your point about who is taking their own life, uh, it is older and it is younger. And it's not so often as we think that the combat veterans, combat veterans have a higher likelihood of, uh, you know, taking their life by suicide. But that doesn't necessarily relate to everyone who kills himself who was a veteran saw combat. Yeah. I know? was actually, I read an interesting statistic. I'm not sure which state it was from. It may have been Pennsylvania. That the, like they, they tracked it for a few years and the majority of the suicides coming out of the guard were, had not deployed before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think I came out in 2016. Yeah. So like a lot of it was due to like socioeconomic Mm -hmm. stuff and not necessarily like combat issues. It was just like desperation from life yeah in general right yeah just shitty economy no work prospects right. like getting bullied tough. online getting yeah bullied. you know we all got bullied growing up and we probably bullied somebody when we were growing up because i was you know kids are terrible that way but uh to have that and then have that in the social media and have that online uh, i think it's it's i think kids have it tough these days you know we, when we were kids and younger i was you know i didn't have a computer or anything until i was well out of high school you could go home and shut your door and not answer the phone or, you know, tell your mom to, you know, if someone calls you, I'll tell them I'm not here. But nowadays it's constantly in their faces and it's, it's gotta be, I mean, it's gotta be tough on them. So I don't know. I don't have, you have a, I know you have a, a son. So yeah, I don't know. I'm glad I don't have kids some days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No shit. It's, I can't imagine like growing up today. Yeah. I'm sure every generation says that for different reasons. But, but now it's like tough. every everything, man, like constantly in her face. Fuck, dude. You know how many uh, scroll through Facebook and so many pages are dedicated just to like kids fighting at school. You yeah. know what I mean? You like, yeah. And like glamorizing that shit. Like it's like a cool thing to do. That's I wish there was like a law that like if you got caught fighting, fist fighting motherfuckers at school mm-hmm. for likes on Facebook that you automatically were forced to join the Marines or the Army when you graduated high school. <laughs> right. It's like, all right, motherfucker, you want to be a tough guy? Yeah. All right. Go prove it. <laughs> yeah. You got that fighting spirit. That's what yeah. we need. <laughs> I wonder if it would curb that shit yeah. somewhat. Well, it might. I know enlistment numbers are down, so maybe that might help. Yeah. Which is a whole nother issue. You know, there seems to be a lot less uh, men and women joining the ranks these days. So, Well, shit. Yeah. Like, I... I like, we've been in Afghanistan 16 years now, man. Like, who the fuck wants to join that? Right, like, there's yeah. no end in sight. No, no, not at all. Uh, we're back in Iraq. We're in Syria. Like, we've never left Afghanistan. Since 2000, October of 2001, mm-hmm. we're now 2018, and we have never left Afghanistan. Like, as right. soon as the first boots were on ground, dude, like, there's never been a period without thousands of U.S. soldiers there. Like, uh, fuck, I joined in, like, 03, 04, like... I remember like during my first, like, so when I joined at basic training, the drill sergeants being like, if you boys are lucky, you'll get a shot to get over there before right. this thing's all over with. 
And then like when I leave Afghanistan at the end of 07 thinking like, all right, well, this thing's got to be coming to a close should here be, shortly. wrap it up soon. <laughs> and then at the end of 09, beginning of 2010, yeah. leaving Afghanistan again and be like, all right, for real this time. Mm-hmm. This shit feels like it's getting pretty close to being over with. And that was- Pretty much done here. And that was eight years ago. (laughs) That's amazing. We've made virtually no progress since then. Yeah. So like, fuck man, I don't don't blame if you're an 18, 19 year old Mm -hmm. kid, like, I want to get involved in Mm -hmm. the US's longest protracted fuck up. Like, I don't know, man. Yeah. I I have nieces and nephews um, and a couple of them asked me about the military and, and- the one a nephew I've had a serious sit down conversation about it. Yeah, you know, I gave him the good, bad, and the ugly. I basically said it was the best decision in my life. Would I do it all over again? Absolutely. And I think ninety nine point nine percent of veterans will say that. I said, but it's also there's, you know, what is the military designed for, and what do you want out of your life? And I think that's stuff that I didn't realize. And again, the, my brother who was in Desert Storm, and maybe he tried to convey this message to me. And you know, being an eighteen, nineteen year old kid, I wasn't listening. But, you know, it's designed in this day and age. Again, that when I went, it was mid-90s and there, were, there was downsizing and, you know, there wasn't much going on. But uh, nowadays, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. And you have to be ready. Say, all right, you know, if you're going to sign this line and, and raise your right hand, you have a, you have a better chance of, of being in harm's way. And that's what the military is designed to do. It's a violent industry. Like, a, like I tell people who are not, don't have much exposure to the military. It's like, it's a violent industry. It's meant to harm, uh, you know, the Air Force, Navy, Army, Marine Corps, they all have Coast Guard, they have their individual mission, but ultimately it's kill yeah. people and protect things. I remember the, the CLCV for those unfamiliar, the Community Leadership Course for Veterans here in Pittsburgh, I uh, was at the retreat last year mm-hmm. and someone brought this up at the retreat and I know there was a little pushback because it's slightly more nuanced than this, but in essence, they were right is the military has two purposes mm-hmm. and that's to break shit and kill people, right? Like it's yeah. it's slightly more complicated, but in right, essence, right. like that's your job is either to kill people and break their shit or to facilitate other people right. to kill people and break their Support shit. Support people killing yeah. people. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, I mean, it is what it is, right? Yeah. Like uh, if someone is like dead set on joining, like I would tell them, all right, just prepare for four years of misery and don't go out of your way to not have any fun Mm. And to do nothing but what you're told to do and then every free moment you have, take college classes. Mm. So when you yeah. get out, you're not you're four years prepared. behind your right. peer group. You've got three years of school knocked out. Mm-hmm. You finish up one more year. You can use your GI Bill for grad school at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that was my biggest regret, man, is getting mm-hmm. out, being 27 years old and being a freshman in college, yeah. you know? That shit's fucking tough. It's like, yeah. see that meme? It's like Billy Madison. It's like what it feels like <laughs> yeah. to go to school on the GI Bill. You're sitting yeah. around a bunch of fucking, right. I remember, because I, I went to CCAC, local community college. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm 28 and I walk in and there's this kid who's fucking every bit of, you know, 18 and a mm-hmm. half. Uh, we're both freshmen and he's sitting in like the common area drinking a Budweiser like on campus. Like and really I'm, badass. And I'm like, <laughs> I sit down next to him and I'm like, look, man, <laughs> I don't want to be that old dude that's like lecturing you, bro. Yeah. But I got to tell you this much. If s- administrator walks in here, it catches you, your ass is out. Mm-hmm. And if you get kicked out of community college, bro, like right. yeah. your fucking options are Florida non-existent <laughs> anymore. You know what I mean? Right. Like. <laughs> You ain't never getting into Pitt or Penn State right. if you've got the boot from CCAC. Like, right. you you can go to University of Phoenix. Like, mm-hmm. that's 
or DeVry. Like those are your only <laughs> options now. WVU, something like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just kidding. Ohio State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's it. And I never finished. A, well, you graduated from Robert Morris eventually, correct? Uh Penn State. Penn State. Okay. Yeah. 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 Penn State. Excuse me. Yeah. I finished my Robert Morris degree, bachelor's. I was 40 because I didn't, uh, you know, I used from the 90s. I didn't have the post 9 11 uh, GI Bill didn't come out until 2009 and then backdated. So I had a little bit of benefits from that. Uh, which so, was sweet. Yeah. Which is phenomenal. And, and uh, so I used that and I eventually finished, you know, went to CCAC and then uh, uh, ultimately Robert Morris, but it took forever like forever to finish in uh, five years, six years to get a four-year degree uh, working full-time the whole time. But it was, uh, it was a really cool achievement and, and something else. I really, you know, I, I didn't take many classes on campus, but I definitely went to the graduation. So yeah. that one old dude sitting around all these kids and I'm like the old guy, like my wife and my boss at the time were in the stands and like, ah, waving <laughs> at them. But I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was a good life achievement for me it yeah. took 23 years to do <laughs> it took me five years to, to get a four-year degree and i was actually kind of proud because like yeah because you, you had a family like, yeah, you, yeah you, mother, you fucking kids all this energy yeah. you did, it takes you four goddamn years like i worked full-time with yeah. a fucking toddler at home bro and like i did it in five I got years better grades uh yeah yeah man i graduated with like a three point fucking eight you yeah. know what i mean like that That's shit awesome. i would yeah. not have done that you know my high school gpa was 1.9 <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I, I didn't give a shit at no, that point yeah. i just thought like high school gpa doesn't fucking matter like right. nobody i've never seen anyone on an application put their high school gpa who gives a shit about that yeah uh i wasn't thinking like oh well no college is gonna want somebody with a 1.9 gpa yeah. uh so then it was the army and then after that that is the one perk like you get out and you're a vet mm-hmm. you can pretty much get into it like as long as like you have half a fucking brain right uh, and can write a decent essay. Like you can get in yeah. pretty much any school you want to, because yeah. they value yeah. adult learners. Because yeah, I know you're going to take it absolutely. more seriously. Yeah. You're more disciplined and, and better. And the teachers time give you so much more leeway. Like, yeah. oh yeah, I don't yeah. think a lot of veterans understand that. I think you know I've worked on a campus for a couple of years and you know worked with staff and faculty and 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 I I was very surprised that you know when it comes to how would I put this uh, big picture stuff. I think a lot of universities have a long way to go with just how their programs are designed for non-traditional students, but for the individual people, oh man, it, 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 they loved veterans it, it, like because yeah, they were the hardest working students in their class. So they would, they would give them a lot of the leeway. And um, I think a lot of veterans were intimidated to go ask questions of them, but I always encourage like, go talk to the professor. You don't talk to go talk to the professor. And, and nine times out of 10, it, they would work something out. Yeah, one of our professors had a zero fucking tolerance policy for unexcused absences, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you didn't let him know beforehand, like, cause, and he had quizzes every single fucking week, you get a yeah. zero in that shit, and he would never let you make it up. And kids would come in all the time, and they'd be like, oh, my grandmother died, or this happened. And he'd be like, grandmas? he'd be like, I want to see a fucking obituary. <laughs> you prove it to me. And I missed the class, because yeah. my dog died, and my uh, wife was out of town, and, like, I had, my son was, like, six at the time, so, mm-hmm. like, I've got to deal with this. I've got to deal with, like, telling my kid. Yeah. I can't now leave him with a babysitter when the only dog he's ever had right. has just died. So, like, I just... The next week I went in, I was like, yo, professor, like, I know you're going to give me a zero. Like, my dog died and right. my wife was out of town and my son, I couldn't leave him. And he was like, I'll let you make it up. He's yeah. like, I, I believe you. <laughs> you, <wouldn't, laughs> you don't, <laughs> you, you haven't told week. me that your grandmother's been in the hospital right. eight times already this semester. Yeah. Uh, they just give you that benefit of the doubt, which is yeah. nice. 
Because you've earned it. Right? Yeah. yeah. They can see it in your how you carry yourself and how you treat them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's like, you're 30. I don't think you're here fucking around. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> you want to get this done. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's it, yeah, it's nice. Like uh, one of the guys I served with, Sergeant Gishman, he retired. So he's got to be fucking, I don't know, close to 50 now. Mm-hmm. And he just posts on Facebook. Like he's like, oh, time to start college. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, you're going to fucking love it because you're yeah. going to be the same age as professors, man. They're not yeah. going to give you, there's, they'll give you zero shit. They'll give you <laughs> all the leeway in the world. Probably older than most of them. Yeah. They'll like, when you raise your hand in class, they'll call on you and they won't mm-hmm. fucking rip you apart for having shitty opinions because your opinions won't be shitty because you're an adult and you've seen the world and you understand how life works. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of the upsides. So, mm-hmm. so let me ask you a, a final two questions. Okay. Uh, thinking about back in your time, active duty, reserves, mm-hmm. and deployed, what was your favorite thing about the Marine Corps and what was your least mm-hmm. favorite thing about the Marine Corps? It's a great question. I guess the favorite thing that uh, the Marine Corps would be, it's uh, the friends you make, right? Uh, the experiences you have. Uh, recently reconnected with a buddy of mine who were active duty together out Camp Pendleton. He's still in, he's an E9 Master Gunnery Sergeant you know, 20 some years in, you know, it, it just talking the stories we had back, uh, back in the day. Um, and I, I think about it every level active duty reserves, deployment. I think about the relationships, the friends, um, and what it meant to be a Marine. I think for me is really, you know, that, um, that bond with those, those guys, uh, men and women, not just, uh, not just guys, uh, so it, it's, uh, you know, I think that was my favorite part. And having my brother as a Marine, too, um, you know, it's, uh, that was, that was really, you know, looking back, that was, you know, we always didn't talk very often because they lived in Denver, Colorado, and different parts of the country. But that was always his birthday, my birthday, and the Marine Corps birthday. We, did, we might miss each other's real birthdays, but we always spoke on the Marine Corps birthday. Yeah. Text or phone call or whatever. But, and then the, the part I, 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 that I disliked the most was i think um yeah how do i put this in the words without uh, <laughs> um the the lack of thinking outside the box for uh you know uh you know use a cliche in that regards um you know it, and that, i mentioned this earlier with having a lot of college students in our reserve unit current college students at the time we could give them a task and you know here's my active duty mentality was all right i tell PFC schmuckatelli to do this they do it exactly as i say well they were like well i'm gonna do it this way because i'm smart and i have a brain and (laughs) this is what i'm a human being and yeah this is easier to do boss trust me (laughs) i don't i don't care if it's easier do it the hard way and so but because i did it the goddamn hard way and it sucked so it's gonna suck for you too so i think this the and i understand why the military and is set up that way uh, the Marine Corps seemed to be like, well, this is this way because it's the Marine Corps way. And it always really, really bothered me from like an organizational leadership aspect. There was, it was too rigid. But I do understand why it is that way. And I think it works well that way in like the, the grunt units, the infantry. And that's really what the Marine Corps is designed is infantry, then infantry support. And Army's very similar, just on a bigger scale. Um, yeah, I was always a part of really just like, would really rack my brain like why are we doing it this way why are we doing it this way <laughs> so that, that's part of really ultimately had me not return to the marine corps or, or re-enlist because i didn't want to move up the ranks anymore because as a sergeant i was still yeah i could get my hands dirty you could still drive the trucks work on them as an e6 e7 and up it was all you know sitting at a desk it's all paperwork uh, policy and paperwork and 
you know, to me that non-judicial punishment and shit. Right, right, exactly. Writing people up and yeah, I'd rather be in the weeds, shoulder to shoulder, and and have fun that way. So yeah, yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Um, anything else you can talk about, Lauren? Great to hear about like your background. I just know how important it was for you to you know touch on your brother and right. to share his story as well as yours. And you talked about is there mm-hmm. anything that you wanted to share more about that, or do you feel mm-hmm. like good about? Because I know when I yeah. do mine, like I wish is talking, and then oh, yeah. afterwards you're like, oh, oh I wish I would have said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that comes to mind that you want to uh, kind of get in the memory books hmm. on your brothers? Well, I, the two, I mean, I mentioned that, you know, the, the thing with the pocket knife, that was a, was a great moment just between my brother and I. And um, I went to his boot camp graduation. It was in, in November, Paris Island. It was freezing cold. Uh, he wasn't able to come to my boot camp graduation because of work. But my mom and my other brother came and it was like 110 degrees. So it was like these two polar opposites. Uh, but I don't think either one of us uh, had ever been back to to Paris Island, uh, and that was our goal. Uh, it was my goal to get back there someday, and because uh, it's really in the middle of nowhere, it's hard to get to. And you know, similar to some of the army bases and uh, you know navies near the water, so that's not too hard to find. But. It was cold. It was freezing cold in yeah. Lakes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, you talked yeah. about like how you got through, like when he passed away. Mm-hmm. You talked about wanting to share like that message with other people, kind yeah. of how. What got you through that? You know, you talk about counseling a little bit, mm-hmm. but what did that look like for you? And after you said you lost him from cancer, like how? Mm-hmm. What did? You, what would you tell other people that have lost someone? You know, in their life like that? Because I know that was yeah. kind of what you wanted to talk about a little bit. No, yeah. It's, uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I, um, uh, when I was I was going through counseling, just specific to uh, the military experience, and then that's when. My mom passed in December of, of 15, and my brother passed in May of 2016. So within six months, uh, I lost uh, my two biggest connections to the Marine Corps was uh, my brother and then my mom. And my mom just always loved the thought of us being Marines. Uh, yeah. and she loved all of her kids, but yeah, it was, it was her thing. So um, yeah, I think um, you know what really drives a lot of the work I do right now is is getting veterans to share their stories very similar to what you guys do here and and with the breakfast club and um yeah i I really really miss that opportunity to have that chance to maybe go to a breakfast club with my brother or a beverage club with my brother or you know and it's you know our family's not super mushy about feelings and whatnot and uh so i you know i'm I'm kind of ashamed that a couple opportunities i did have i didn't you know i i remember i started counseling i told my brother he was still around and uh, we were texting back and forth and I said, you know, I started counseling and he said, that's a good thing. And he said he had reached out a few times in the past, uh, for different things. He didn't get very specific, more specific than that. And so we never were able to kind of uh, build off of that. But, uh, you know, I, now I know is everybody's experience in the military is different. And, uh, you know, the more you can share that with loved ones and friends and family and whatever, uh, you know, uh, I think people should be encouraged to do that as, as much as they can. And with this, uh, I'm going to share this recording with my entire family and just so that they can hear my story and hear a little bit more about, you know, my brother's story and stuff. So, uh, yeah, the work you guys do here with, with getting people to open up and share and recording it and, and the, the evening meetings and the morning meetings. I mean, that's just, to me, that's, uh, the best thing that anybody can do. And I see that every day in the work they do at the vet centers and the, and the counseling. And I see it in these, these older veterans faces that come in and they talk about it. And 
their families come in and their spouses come in and talk about it. So it's it's a, it's important work, and I think it should be continued. So yeah, thank you guys very much. I oh, appreciate that, man. Yeah, yeah. Anything else you want to share? No, that's it. All right, Spent. This has been good. <laughs> Give you one last chance before I hit that stop button. I'm all good. Thank you very all much. All right, man. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app. You can't join the army, you're too young. Besides, the army's weak. Now the Marines, those are the men you want to f-